Hi, welcome to West Edmonton Christian Assembly, and thank you for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Well, good morning and happy Canada Day weekend. And this is, as you could see from the video this morning, our series and our final message in our series called Authenticity. For those of you who might be here for the very first time or you're viewing this via the live streaming, essentially we've been in a small study through a short book of the New Testament located near the back of the New Testament called 1 John. It's really part of a package of letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And essentially, 1 John is a short letter that takes a look at some of the characteristics of authentic Christianity. And as I mentioned a a number of messages ago, really the letter was written to address a church that was in crisis, a church that was in conflict. There was a notable number of Uh, congregants that belonged to the house churches that were planted in that part of the world that had defected from the Johannine community of faith and they had been influenced by false teachers and false doctrine. And there were some other things going on in the house churches at that time. There was a rebellion going on against some of the uh, leadership and its authority And there were some uh, issues and a crisis over ethics and morals and what was considered to be right, not right. And so it was a a cosmopolitan collection of different issues and struggles and troubles. And so these three letters were written to address some of those things and to be able to deal with what was going on in the church at that time. And so this morning, as we look at the fifth and final chapter of 1 John, we're going to once again tease out several different uh, symptoms or, or signs or, or things that we might call characteristics of authentic Christianity. And it's amazing to know, uh, as I mentioned um, a couple weeks ago, how many times the author in his letter, 1 John, uses a phrase like, this is how we know. This is how we know, or you know, or this is how you know. And so essentially when he uses those phrases, and in fact, I think it's about 26 times in five chapters where he uses that phrase or phrases like that or words like that, he's essentially saying to the recipients of his letter, this is how you can know that which is truly Christian, not only in doctrine and theology, but also in practice. So this is how you know that which is legit, that which is true, that which is authentic. This is how you can know. This is how you can know. And I think that that is very, very important for our church and the churches in 21st century Christianity as well. Because there is so much that's out there. There are so many different ways of viewing the word Christian. From, well, it, it says Christian in my passport. Or it says, you know, I, I was born in Canada, so I'm Christian. Or, well, I'm a Christian, or I, I go to church, or I, I'm a little bit religious. or And so being able to somehow define or assess that which is authentically Christian versus that which really isn't is quite important. And it's important for us today because in today's world, everything kind of gets tossed into the basket of religion. 
And I wonder at times if this is not part of Satan's strategy. It's just to dope people up with an exposure to religion. While at the same time keeping them from really, really, truly becoming a Christ follower. And I like what Chad Walsh Walsh said. He wrote these words. He said, I suspect that Satan has called off his assault on Christianity for he knows full well that if he can infect a person with a dose of religion, he can likely inoculate them from ever contracting the real disease. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a great thought. And I think essentially that is the danger that we face living in North America is that within the scope of the 21st century church and 21st century Christianity, we do have people who've been injected or infected with a small dose of that which is quote-unquote supposedly Christian. And somehow it inoculates them and keeps them from ever contracting the real disease. That is to truly be a Christ follower. And I think 1 John is a letter that's written to help articulate what it looks like to contract the real disease. Because when you think about it, friend, almost everything in this life possesses something or some things that essentially validate or authenticate the credibility of the item. In other words, there are characteristics about things in life that somehow cause us to look at that thing and to say, that's, that's legit. Like, that's the real thing. That, that's authentic. We see it in all kinds of different sectors of life. With a classic car, it might be like matching numbers or a piece of documentation that really authenticates the originality of the car. With a piece of art, it could be a signature. It might be a, a notable characteristic. But there's something that allows the art expert to look at it and to say, hey, that's legit. That's authentic. With a historical event, it, it, it could be an artifact. It could be a manuscript. Maybe it's a photo. Maybe it's a video. But there's something there that allows the historian to say, like, that, that's truly authentic. And Christianity is no different. There are things, there are characteristics about authentic Christianity and about one claiming to be Christian that help legitimize or support the credibility of the claim. And essentially, 1 John is a letter that contains chapter by chapter, and some of the chapters reinforce similar things. Chapter by chapter, it contains these things that would be like a filter or a litmus paper test that you can put up against that which is false or that which is not authentic. You say, that, that, that's not biblical Christianity. That's falsified. So 1 John contains these things that work as a filter for us. So with that as a very short introduction to the message, what I want to do is uh, read chapter 5 for you. We've been reading through the different chapters as we've been going through the messages. And essentially there are 21 verses in this chapter. And after I read the chapter for you, then we'll revisit different portions of the text. And we'll look at some things that I think that we can walk away with this morning when we leave here. We, we can say, you know, that, that gives me a little bit of a filter 
or a screen through which I can run my own Christianity. And I, I can see the authenticity of my faith. The writer writes these words. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. In other words, and that's a, a constant theme. If, if you claim to have love for God then that should essentially spill over or cascade down into the love that you have for other people, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, but to all of humanity. This is how we know that we love the children of God and that would be born of God and love the Father by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. In other words, they're not there to ruin your life. And we'll come back to that in a moment. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which is given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that what we have asked, we know that we have what we've asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. This is a very, very interesting and somewhat difficult to understand, even among theologians little section of this chapter. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, or probably better characterized as, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to be characterized by sin. We're not talking about perfection. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You don't need a half a brain cell to know. Look through the paper, listen to the news. Like if you're wondering why are we in the snowbank all the time? Well, it might have something to do with verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's probably why it looks in part the way it does. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him, we know who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Very interesting passage, and I would suggest for your thinking, tucked inside of those 21 verses that conclude this letter, 
are several signs or notable characteristics of things that I think underscore the authenticity of one's Christianity. And I want to mention five of them for you very quickly as we go through them. So five and five. Five things that authenticate true Christianity in chapter five. Let's have a look at the first one. What about this? Belief in and acceptance of the person and work of Jesus Christ as testified to by historical witnesses and God the Father himself. This is very, very important. And as authentic Christians, not only do we know this, but we believe this. We believe that the witnesses that speak to the authenticity of Christ, his personhood, his nature, his mission, that these things are true and that they're reliable. In verses 5 through 11, the author writes these words. Let's have a look for a moment. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood. We'll talk about that in a moment. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. There's actually four because God testifies. We'll see that in a moment. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So the very first thing that the author of the letter notes in chapter 5 as it relates to authentic Christianity is a belief in and acceptance of the witnesses who lay claim to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And essentially he identifies a three witnesses. He talks about those who were with Jesus while Jesus was on earth. He talks about the spirit of truth, number two. And then number three, talks about God the Father himself. And this is very, very important. So the first thing he mentions is human testimony. So he's talking about the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, who listened to Jesus. Those who were at his baptism, those who were at his crucifixion, more on that in a moment. But he talks about this. This is the very first thing the author writes in his letter. You have to go all the way back to chapter one. Let's have a look at that for a moment. The first three verses. This is this is incredible. He says, look, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. So the author is saying, look, there were people living on earth who saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. So the author is saying, look, this is not like believing in Jack and the Beanstalk, or Peter Pan, or Despicable Me, whatever it is. Like Jesus is not in the realm of that which is fictitious and fanciful. In fact, there are extra biblical sources and writings. You don't even have to look in the Bible. You can look at historical writings that verify Jesus the Christ. He is the word of life. This is the one 
who is life itself, and it was revealed to us, and we've seen him, and now we testify, and we, we're witnesses. We're, we're like in the court of law, we're giving testimony to, we're, we're witnessing. And we proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. So the author makes it clear to the recipients of the letter that eyewitnesses existed that gave testimony as to the authenticity of Christ. Very, very important. And he talks about two specific definable moments in the life of Christ in verse 5 and verse 6. Let's have a look at that for a moment. This is what he writes. This is the one who came by water. Likely he's referencing the baptism of Jesus. There were people who witnessed his baptism. Just, just like last weekend, we, we witnessed people being baptized in the tank. We saw it. We could write about it years later and say, you know, on that day, that Sunday, I, I, I was there. I saw, I saw them. They were real people. They went into the water. They came back out. So this is the one who came by water and blood. We saw him crucified. There were witnesses that were there at Golgotha. You could actually go to that spot. If you go over to Israel and you, you, you go to Jerusalem, they will take you to, to the area that depicts Golgotha, the place of the skull. I've got pictures of it. It's, it's fascinating. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Very interesting. And then he goes on to give one stronger testimony. He identifies one more witness and he talks about God the Father. In verses 9 and 10b, the author writes these words about the authenticity of Christ as witnessed by God the Father. Let's have a look at it. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. It's amazing. So when did God give testimony? When did God witness as to the authenticity of his son Christ? Well, I can think of two different occasions that were also witnessed by humans. So the one was the baptism of Jesus. The other was the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So we're going to look at the baptism for just a moment. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what it says in Matthew's gospel. After his baptism, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, just like we saw last weekend, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and setting on him. Settling on Jesus. And a voice from heaven. Well, whose voice was that? Well, likely Father God. A voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And I think some other translations or some other uh, uh, gospels will say, in whom I'm well pleased. So now we have God the Father adding to the witnesses of the human testimony. We have God the Father saying, this is my son. He's authenticating the deity of Christ. He's authenticating his mission. It's legit. And now here's what's important. The one who claims to be Christian, not only in the first century, but living in the 21st century, 
is the one that must believe in the one that was sent. Isn't that what it says in verse 10a? Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. So ladies and gentlemen, you, you, you can't say on the one hand, well, I'm Christian. But you know, I, I, don't, I don't really think Jesus came to earth. I, I don't think he was God's son. But if I have any religion, it would be Christian. No, no, no. That's not authentically Christian. To be authentically Christian is to believe in the one who sent the one into our world. And to recognize that there's testimony. There are witnesses. Just like in a court of law. Where the witnesses testify and then the jury comes up with a verdict. Based upon those witnesses and the testimonies. Christianity is supported by multiple witnesses including God the Father. And authentic Christians believe that the testimony of these witnesses is legit. Number two. How about obedience to what God commands? So yes, it's important to say, I believe that Jesus came to earth. I believe that Jesus is God's son. I believe it's authenticated by human witness and by the witness of God the Father, validated by the spirit of truth. But friend, if it doesn't make any difference in how you live, if this doesn't change your worldview, if, if you're not living out your life in obedience to the commands of God, I would say you're not demonstrating one of the things that authenticates true Christianity. In verses 1 through 4, the author underscores this. He writes these words, Everyone who believes... That Jesus is the Christ, the born of God, is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Interesting. You mean, Pastor, it's not enough to just acknowledge that Jesus was God's son? Well, I think when we believe in Christ and we accept him into our lives and we are forgiven of our sins, then by his grace and through our faith, yes, we are reconciled to God. We are saved. We become Christians. But one of the notable demonstrations of our Christianity is found in our obedience to the teachings of Jesus and the whole counsel of God's word. Very important. In other words, I've said it before, belief and behavior, they travel in the same car. They ride together. They ride together. Clearly, this is declared in verse 3a. We'll put it up there one more time. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. To keep his commands. I don't think I can say it better than that. I don't think you need a Bible college degree to know how to interpret that sentence. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's one of the reoccurring themes in 1 John, but it's also one of the reoccurring themes throughout all 66 books of the Bible, the Old New Testament, obedience. You see, friend, believing in God, feeling God, encountering God, experiencing God, these are important things. They're meaningful. They're wonderful. 
But at the end of the day, feelings can be fleeting and words can be wearisome, but actions are enduring. They mean something. Someone said it. It's true. Our actions, they speak so much louder than our words. To quote a very famous theologian, Patrick Waugh, when responding to a critical world word that was hurled his way by Jeremy Roenick, do you remember what Patrick Waugh said in response? He said this, I cannot hear what you're saying because my two Stanley Cup rings are plugging my ears. Well, what's he saying to Jeremy Roenick? He's saying, Jeremy, you just talk. You're just blowing smoke. You haven't backed it up. Like, I have two Stanley Cup rings. They're plugging my ears so I can't hear your nonsense. I wonder if at times God, with all the compassion and love in his heart, says to those who claim to be Christian, I cannot hear your confession because your constant lack of obedience to my word is plugging my ears. Do you obey his commands? Let's come back to that George Gallup quote. Doing a great job, Carter. I mixed it up for him this morning. Never before in the history of Christianity has the gospel of Jesus Christ made so many inroads as it relates to the availability of God's word, while at the same time making so little difference as to how people live. And that was a concluding comment he made at the end of one of his soul-searching surveys years ago. I don't think it's changed much. And I love what the author does about this whole issue as it relates to obedience to God's commands. I don't know if you noticed it in the text, in the chapter or not, but he essentially addresses a couple of the common complaints that people give as it relates to obeying the commands of God. Likely in that day, for sure in our day too. So let's have, let's have a look at the two common complaints that people give. The commands of God are too legalistic and they weigh me down. Okay? Number two, in the world in which we live, it's too hard. It's virtually impossible to follow God's commands. So the first one people say, you know, all of these commandments in Scripture and the guidance of God's Word, it's ruining my life. I can't do anything but play rook. No, 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 no. And we're going to talk about this one for a moment. Maybe you felt that way before. This is how he responds in verse 3b through to verse 5. Very important. Let's have a look. The writer says, first of all, God's commands are not burdensome. So God doesn't give you the guidance of his word. He doesn't give you commands, precepts, and principles because he wants to make your life miserable and he wants to ruin you. He's not trying to weigh you down. We're not talking about a boatload of legalism. He loves you. He's trying to help guide you. He's trying to protect you from things that will ultimately incriminate your life. And then he says this, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. So he addresses the second issue. Pastor, in 2017, you can't expect me to follow God's word. It's way too hard. Like if you follow the word of God at JP High School, school, you're you're kind of a freak. Like like you're so rare. Like nobody listens to his word. It's too hard. No, 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 no. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory 
that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Essentially, the author's saying two different things. The commands of God are not given to burden you, to weigh you down or wreck your life. They're given as a blessing. And secondly, if you believe in Jesus and you have his spirit within you, you have everything that you need and you are exceptionally empowered to obey his commands. Perfection? No. Sinlessness? No. But you can be characterized in this life by obedience to his commands. Very important. Number three. How about this? Confidence and assurance in the reliability of God's presence, the, 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 the reality of God's presence, and the reliability of God's practices. Friend, for those who are authentic Christians, there is this growing confidence in the reality of God's presence and this growing confidence in the reliability of God's practice. And the other addresses in verses 15, 15. This is a great text. He says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, we have asked of him. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about all my unanswered prayer? What about the times that I asked him and he didn't do it for me? This can be a very troubling verse for people. But I'll say a few things. First of all, this is one of the characteristics of those who claim to be Christian. Christianity is it's not a religion that's characterized by lifeless rituals and all of this heavy dogma. It's characterized by an authentic and meaningful relationship with the God of all creation that translates into you trusting him, having confidence in him, feeling assured by him. Does this mean you never doubt? No, it doesn't mean that. Does this mean that we never go through seasons of uncertainty? No, I don't think it means that. But I think it means as we get to know God more and more as we journey through this life, we begin to see him and know him as a loving father, one who delights in communing with us and caring for us. These verses are not depicting a slot machine type of God where you put in the prayer and out comes whatever answer you want every time. The verses are reflecting the prayers of one who is submitted to God's will and surrendered to his ways. And ladies and gentlemen, when you delight yourself in God, he gives you the desires of your heart, not because he does whatever you want, but it's because your desires become more aligned with his. And then the unanswered prayer that we just can't figure out and it just doesn't make sense. And quite frankly, it's troubling. It's mysterious. It's hurtful. There is a percentage of our prayers that, that we likely have to leave in the realm of, as Job said, and Job went through an awful lot. Surely I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Some things we just can't know. It's true. Question, is your confidence in God's goodness, his faithfulness, his reliability, his trustworthiness, is that, is that growing little by little? Number four, the fourth thing that authenticates true Christianity is this, interest in intercession for and involvement with those who have drifted or are drifting spiritually. Let's take a look at verse 16 through to 19 for a moment. Interesting passage. 
The author says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray. When you see someone going wayward, when you're concerned about someone, when you think someone is coming off the tracks a little bit, a brother or a sister, pray for them. God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Is not characterized by sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. A couple of thoughts. These are interesting verses. A little bit challenging. Even theologians agree to disagree. On exactly what the sin that leads to death is. But my point in this characteristic is not to dig into every little piece of theology in that statement. It's simply to suggest that for for those who are authentic Christians, the spiritual state of other brothers and sisters matters. It's always of interest. In a sense, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. It does matter how others are doing spiritually speaking. We should be interested. We should care. You can't care for everyone. Pick one or two. Pick someone that God puts on your heart. Someone that you think is deviating from true north, defecting from the faith. When others from the forever family of God are struggling or drifting, our response should not be, well, thank God me and my children are doing well. No. The response should be involvement. Calvin said it, interesting thought. He said, surely it is an iron hardness not to feel pity when we see souls redeemed by Christ's blood going to ruin. And then Robert Yarbrough said it in his great commentary. He said this, the one who sees sin, essentially the one who's drifting spiritually, is to make request or petition. So we're not called to point fingers. We're not called to turn a blind eye. We're not called to initiate gossip, to talk about them. And we're not called to bask in this feeling of superiority. Well, I thank God I'm not like them. Prayer for transgressions or spiritual waywardness, whether it's one's own or those of others, is basic to Christian faith. And then number five. The fifth and final thing that authenticates true Christianity. A willingness to separate oneself from that which threatens relational fidelity with the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of the letter concludes his first letter with one of the shortest and yet most impactful sentences, not only in the letter, but I would say in the New Testament. In verse 21, he writes these words, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I want us to look at the New Living Translation as a way of capturing it just a little bit different. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So authentic Christians are characterized not by perfection, but a sensitivity to, an honesty to, a willingness to acknowledge if there is something coming in between them and Christ. So it could be a person, could be an activity, could be something. And the Bible calls it idolatry. 
Now, the truth is, in the 21st century, we're not really characterized a lot by totem poles and statues and things that we would consider to be idols. It's not like most of us have these idols set up in our homes. But maybe there are things that could be coming in between you and Christ. Interesting to think about. If we're honest, if we're perfectly honest, perhaps most of us would say that from time to time, we have to do a little bit of purging. Because in a sense, your relationship with God is not really that much different than your relationship with your spouse or a good friend. You do what you need to do to try and protect the loyalty and faithfulness. And I know it can be very complicated. But you lovingly assess your relationship and you seriously consider separating yourself from things or people that are coming in between you and Christ. So we need to think about that. So what are the things in conclusion that we could look at from chapter 5 that we could sort of check off? As a filter, a litmus paper test of authentic Christianity. Well, we'll list them one at a time, one more time, and then we're going to close. Let's take a look at them. Belief in and acceptance of the person work of Jesus Christ as testified to by historical witnesses and God the Father himself. What about the second one? Obedience to what God commands. Confidence and assurance in the reliability of God's presence. Reality and the reliability of God's practices. How about this one? Interest in intercession for and involvement with those who have drifted or are drifting spiritually. And then finally this one. A willingness to separate oneself from that which threatens relational fidelity with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask if we would just uh, stand together. And maybe we can just close our eyes for a moment. And just open up our hearts. As we just, we just think for a moment in this time of reflection about the chapter we just read. The series we just went through, Authenticity, I would just encourage us just before I pray to take some time maybe to even review this book, 1 John. Maybe you want to read it through on your own again. And just allow the Holy Spirit of God to take a little inventory, to do a little scan of your life, not to weigh you under a boatload of condemnation or paralyzation but to inspire you to grow closer to him our heavenly father we give you thanks for your word for your word gives us guidance your word is true we don't have to worry that you're just blowing smoke or you're flattering us or you're you're trying to ruin our lives and burden us down with you know all of these ridiculous rules to take all the fun out of our you care about, you created us, you care about us, you're concerned for us. There's no one that loves us more eternally than you do. And we give you thanks for guiding us through this, this series and giving us from, some guidance for life as a result of what we've learned from your word. And as we leave this place today, may we walk as authentic witnesses, not perfect people, but people to whom our world can look. And perhaps say, they're legit. They're authentic. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for coming on this long weekend. Uh, what a wonderful weekend. God bless you.
Thanks for taking in the series and uh, make sure you say hi to somebody before you leave and uh, chit chat a little bit with people. Have a great, great weekend as you go. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can watch us live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Mountain through our Facebook page or by visiting us at weka.com. We invite you to be part of our online community by visiting any of the links in the show liner. If you're in the Edmonton, Alberta area, visit us at our West Edmonton campus on 199th Street or pop in for a coffee at the Weka Chapel located in the West Edmonton Mall.